Mark's prayer, that was good. Uh, Bible survey, we were going through Ephesians and Philippians, Colossians, I think, this last week. Uh, I'll talk about prayer a little bit here in a moment, too, in the message. But when we pray for each other, to pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we might know the treasure we have in Christ and in each other. That's one of the key prayers, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, and Colossians as well. That's one of the things we should pray for ourselves and for each other, that, that we get things inside, that it's not just head knowledge, that we see things in a way that God means us to. They lay hold of us, we lay hold of them. That's how we are transformed. So great, great prayers there. Hey, I hope you guys were challenged last week as much as I was by both the video as we talked about Persecuted Church Sunday and also the message just about some of the ways that we can be involved in being the body of Christ to Christians in other parts of the world primarily who are suffering, um, there's an opportunity to give feet to that this week. This is not in the bulletin. It's not on your study sheet. But we highlighted last week uh, Saeed Abedini, who's an American pastor in an Iranian prison, been there over two years, The United States is in conference with Iran over a nuclear treaty, and so there's some leverage available now that we probably won't have in the future, and that apparently is supposed to end this month. So there's a postcard blitz that's being planned for Pastor Abedini, and if you email, guys, I think I'm, yeah, email, freesaeed at trinity3in1.net, you can get these postcards that have been approved by his wife that they hope to send a bunch to the White House like this week. So uh, F-R-E-E-S-A-E-E-D, Free Saeed, at Trinity 3, the number in, one the number, dot net. If you email them, you can get a hold of these postcards and send them in this week. So, you know, we talk about reading our Bible and knowing what God says. God's Word is important. But if it's just in our head and we don't do something about it, that's really not what we're interested in. We want to do the things God calls us to, and this is a practical way to go about that. Let me pray again briefly. Lord, would you show us more of your Son this morning through your Word? And with Paul, we do pray, Lord, that you'd enlighten the eyes of our heart. Lord, would you draw us out to see your Son as he is, to value him above rubies above earthly treasures above everything else we thank you so much that you sent a savior to die for our sins and that we have hope because of him in jesus name amen guys we're going to be in luke again this is the second in the luke series uh, the son of man in the gospel of luke and we're in a narrative text and so it's telling a story and so we're going to this is like taking a walk through the woods we're in no hurry we're ambling through. I'm going to read through the text, verses 5 through 20, 20 or 25 of Luke 1. And I'm going to interrupt myself all the way through, just talking about and making comments on things that the text says. That'll be most of our time. And then we'll make a couple of points and we'll close, okay? But narratives are slow moving and we're, we're listening to a story and so hopefully our minds and our imaginations are engaged here as we go through. By way of introduction, before we get to Luke's Gospel, uh, if you've looked in your Old Testament, you know that Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And chronologically, it's also, it tells the last of what we've got in Israel's history there in the Old Testament as well. And if you read that letter, you, you know that 
it's primarily an indictment by God against Israel. And if you think about when this occurs around 400 to 430 B.C. or so, Israel had come back from captivity in Babylon. And under the Persians, they'd rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem and they're back in the land. And if you read books like Ezra and Nehemiah, you get a taste for what some of that looked like. And God during those days had told them, come back to covenant faithfulness. And in some ways they had, in some ways they hadn't. So in this last book of the Old Testament, when God speaks to Israel through Malachi, He's primarily telling them, you guys are not being faithful. You're not being faithful to me and you're not being faithful to each other. And wives or in giving and sacrifice, you name it. So it's an indictment of the nation. And you get to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 and God says, I'm going to do something about this and I'm going to send judgment. And it's going to be like a furnace. It's going to be a fiery judgment. And so far everything's consistent and it's crazy because at that point, God sort of flips the tables and He goes from this message of judgment to something entirely different. And remarkably, at the end of this letter word, prophetic word, book, after all the indictments, God gives these remarkable promises. So this is Malachi 4, verse 2. After talking about fiery judgment ahead, He says, But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Judgment's coming. It's like a fiery furnace. But for you who fear My name, in contrast to the wicked... The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The Jews understood this clearly to be a messianic promise. That this judgment was going to come on one hand, fire, but that just like the sun rising in the east, behind this judgment was going to come the Messiah with healing. For those waiting for Him, He's coming with healing. Judgment's coming on one hand, but healing in the Son of Righteousness is coming also. And he says not only that, Messiah is going to come as part and sort of after this initial judgment, Messiah is coming. And, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So you wind down, last book of the Old Testament, last word God gives, and it says the Messiah's coming and His forerunner's coming before Him and is going to announce Him. And Malachi says Elijah. You remember Elijah's one of the key prophets in the Old Testament. He called fire down from heaven. He's the prophet of judgment. You remember the guys are burning up from Elijah and drought. But Messiah's coming, Malachi says, closes on the promise, Messiah's coming, and a guy's going to come before him. Malachi says Elijah. Our text today will speak of this language. Elijah's going to come and announce Messiah's presence. Now, this is about 400 to 430 B.C. So I'm glad that I've got a word here. If I'm a Jew in that day, I've got a word, a promise that Messiah's coming. There will be times of terrible judgment, but healing is coming with God's anointed chosen one following. So the Bible doesn't tell us about these 400 years. We call them the 400 silent years because there's no recorded revelation from God that's on the same level as Scripture. So it's silent in that sense. 
And these are really tumultuous days for the nation. So if you remember, they come back under the Babylonians, but the Persians defeat the Babylonians. So then they're ruled by the Persians until a guy from Greece named Alexander gets up and he just wipes out the Persians and he takes over the Mediterranean world really to the mountains of India. But he dies young. And so his four generals divide up his kingdom. And Seleucid takes over the area that we would call Syria today or Lebanon today. And so things are continue along for a while. And then in, in the 160s B.C., one of Seleucid's uh, descendants named Antiochus, and he gives himself the name God Revealed, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus comes down from Syria and he says to the Jews, you may no longer practice your religion. It's illegal to circumcise your sons. It's illegal to read or possess the law, the Torah. And so these are terrible dark days. And Antiochus desecrates, he does the worst thing he can, he desecrates the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. This is 168 B.C. Now there's a group of uh, brothers named the Maccabees. And they're from the priestly line. And they get a little upset over this. And they raise an army. And they defeat Antiochus. They beat Antiochus at his own game. And they cleanse the temple. And this is where the Jewish feast of Hanukkah comes from. The feast of lights. Because they go into the temple, they cleanse it after it's been desecrated, but they don't have enough oil to keep the menorah burning, and it burns anyway. And that's the origination of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, or the feast of lights. So from 168 B.C. to about 63 B.C., for about 100 years, the Jews are ruling themselves again. And life is good. And it's a priestly, it's not the Davidic king, king's line that's ruling them, it's the line of the Maccabees. It's the Maccabee descendants ruling Israel. And this goes along, and they sort of corrupt also over time. By the New Testament period, the line of the Maccabees is not well respected. They've sort of gone away from their forefathers' original fervor for the Lord. And then in 63 B.C., Pompey, the Roman general, goes in while Israel had some internal strife and says, we're, we're here to help you out, we're the Romans, and, and we'll take care of this for you. And, and so they do, and so Israel comes under the Roman heel. And that all goes on during these 400 years. So the Old Testament, as far as God's Word, closed with the Word that Messiah's coming and someone's going to come before Him and announce Him. And so we've had at least 10 generations come and go, 40 years apiece. We've had over 400 years. And if I'm a Jew, I might be wondering, has God forgotten those promises? It's the last word He spoke to us. Generations have come and generations have gone how about the promises of Messiah and of Messiah's forerunner? And that brings us into our text this morning, Luke 1, verses 5 through 25. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we introduced Luke's gospel, Luke made it very clear that his was a hard-headed, factual, clear-eyed account, eyewitnesses, people who had seen and heard Jesus, that he's giving a hard-headed account of Jesus' life and miracles and claims. And so as he starts his narrative, he's told us what he's going to do. As he starts the narrative proper, that's at verse 5 in chapter 1. So I hope you have a study sheet and along we go. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and that's Herod the Great, the guy that wants to kill all the babies later. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
of the division of Abijah. If you go back to Chronicles, you'll see that under David and following, the priests were divided into 24 courses or groups, and they would take turns a week at a time going to the temple and serving. So he's in the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, for the Jews who heard Luke's gospel, this introduction here would have reminded them of at least a couple of different couples, families in the Old Testament narrative. So Luke tells us Zechariah and Elizabeth who are both descendants of Aaron. So I'm thinking of Exodus 2, verse 1, when Exodus told us a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. So I've got two Levites. The text is clear to tell me which tribe they're both from before it tells me that they're going to have a son. And their son is Moses. But by the way, they already have another son, Moses' older brother, Aaron. And so as Luke's language starts up with this narrative, he tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth are descended from Aaron, and his language reminds us of Aaron's family, the parents he came from. Amram and Jochebed were told their names in Exodus 6, verse 20. So at least for that early audience, when they hear this, they're thinking about that couple before from Exodus. And by the way, Zechariah and Elizabeth are in Aaron's line. Similar story. Similar description and the same genealogy there. But also it tells us they're advanced in age. We've got a barren couple that's advanced in age. Now who would that put us in mind? Of Maybe Abram and Sarai, whom God renames Abraham and Sarah. And there was a couple that the scripture was clear to tell us. They're too old to have children. And God shows up and he gives them a child of promise. And so as soon as we hear Luke's introduction, we're thinking about Old Testament couples through whom God gave a key child, a key son, or a son of promise, or a son who is going to rise up and do mighty things in God's names. And we're thinking that same thing as Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. So verse 8, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. I suppose I should have had an image of the temple, but maybe you guys know sort of the temple, you know, the building there on the temple mount, and you had walls and partitions. You know, you can only get so close to God and His presence there. And it's guesstimated there are about 18,000 priests at this time, just based on the number of families and a little bit of the population of Israel at the time. There were so many priests that they had to cast lots. It would be sort of an equivalent of drawing, what would we say, throwing dice or doing some, some method of uh, selecting one and not another. They drew lots to see which priest would go in morning and evening to offer the incense. So you remember in the temple... Once a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. That was the only person ever in Israel who could go into the place that God specifically said, I dwell there in the inner part of the temple in the Holy of Holies. But other priests, not the high priest, they would go in daily 
when the morning and the evening sacrifices were being made for the nation, the lambs, morning and evening, they would go in and they would offer the incense. And they would also go in and put bread on that table. And they would also go in and put oil in that menorah. So this is probably the only time in his life Zechariah would ever go into the holy place. The priest would make the offerings outside, you know, the burnt offerings on the altar, but to go into the doors of the temple, this was probably the only time in his life this would happen. We think this is probably the evening sacrifice because it talks about the crowd that's present. There were probably more people at the end of the day than there would have been in the morning. Maybe not not that many early risers getting up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but lots of people by the end of the day. It's interesting when you say, if we say something happens by chance, you know, it's as if uh, there's nothing behind it, it's just the way it fell out. And so this says, Zechariah, it fell to him by lot. We might say, by chance. But you know, Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap. It's like taking dice and throwing them out. I have no control over how they fall and what shows, right? But it says, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, with the Lord, there's no chance. It doesn't just happen. Zechariah is chosen by God, by lot, to be in the holy place to offer incense on this day at this time. You can imagine, too, uh, God was very careful about His glory and, and from Aaron, or excuse me, from Zechariah's own lineage back to some of his forebears' relatives. Two of his forebears had been struck dead by God because they offered an offering in a way God had not told them to. And so Zechariah is probably a little on edge. I want to make sure I do this right. I'm going into the holy place. The only time in my life this is going to happen to offer that incense. I better do it right. So I'm thinking he's a little anxious when verse 11 says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. If there's anybody in there, this is the holy place. Nobody's in there. It's empty unless the priest goes in. And I go in and I go to the altar and there's somebody standing next to the altar. What is going on? And Zechariah was troubled. Imagine that. By the way, almost any time in the Bible when someone sees an angel, it says they're troubled. They're afraid. He's troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You know, if I'm putting myself in his shoes, it's not a little fear, it's a lot. And this guy's telling me something. I'm probably only hearing half of what he says, right? What is going on? Who are you? How'd you get here? And think of this. What Luke records here, this is the first time a voice has spoken from heaven in 400 years. Since Malachi's word, this is the first word from heaven to earth. And it's to this old priest in the holy place, not expecting anyone to be there. And the angel tells Zechariah, he and Elizabeth are going to have that son, and they're to call him John. And you know when we name something, and you see this in the creation account, when God says, Adam, you name the animals, that means Adam is their authority. Adam's the one who rules over them. When we name our children, it's because they're our children. I don't name your child, you don't name mine. To name means we have authority. Well, God says this child isn't so much yours as he is mine. That's why I give him the name. 
And you're to call him John. And John is from the Hebrew Yohanan, which means Yahweh has graced or God has bestowed or God has given. Do you remember when uh, God tells Abraham and Sarah they'll have a baby? And you're to call his name Yitzhak or Isaac, which means laughter. Because when you get him, you're going to laugh for joy. Well, you guys, when you get this little one, you're going to feel like, God, you gave us the best gift. You graced us. You gave us this gift of a child, of a son that we never thought was going to happen. We thought chances for that were over entirely. So he's startled, but the angel's saying some good things here. Now think of this too. He says your prayers have been answered. So when I read this, I'm just thinking, here's this old guy, and you can imagine he and Elizabeth got married. Let's say he's in his 20s or 30s. Maybe she's younger. That would have been typical. Maybe she's in her her teen years. They get married and they expect to start having children. And, you know, the months go by and there's no child. And you know what they would start doing? They would start praying. And, you know, then the years would go by and they would be praying, right? Now, at some point, Elizabeth's probably already gone through menopause. Do you think they're praying for a child anymore? Unlikely. Your prayers have been heard. These have got to be prayers made days, years, decades earlier. And here comes this angel and says, by the way, God heard your prayer. This reminds me, do you remember in Daniel? I think, I think we come up to this later. In Daniel, Daniel's trying to figure things out from God and he read Jeremiah and 70 years you're in captivity in Babylon and and Daniel sets himself aside to fast and pray and to seek God and to, and to come to grips with this. Lord, are you redeeming us? Are we going back now? And it's so interesting because he prays for three weeks. And when the angel comes, I think this might be Gabriel also, which of course is who we're talking to here. But when he comes, it's interesting, he says, the first day you set your heart to seek God on this, I was sent. You prayed three weeks ago. And he said, God sent me the first day you prayed. But I've been in this heavenly battle with a demon who hasn't wanted me to come and respond to you and to God's directing me to give you a message. And he said, Michael, the other angel, Gabriel and Michael are the two angels named in the Scripture, had to come and help me. But it's interesting that he had prayed God sent the messenger, but it took three weeks for him to get there. So Daniel might be thinking, Lord, what are you doing? I'm praying, but I'm not hearing anything. Well, take that and multiply it times decades. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had prayed, and I'll bet they prayed faithfully. They're described as righteous. They weren't hypocritical. They weren't just religious. They pleased God. They were people of faith. They honored God in all the ways they knew to. And they had prayed for children. And you remember for the Jews, if you died childless, this was not a good thing. There was no one to carry on your name or your line. It was like an element of the life of Israel had died out. It was critical that each couple had children and critical that one of those be a male to carry out their father's line and name. So they had prayed and prayed and prayed and they haven't got their prayer. And the angel turns around and says, hey, God heard your prayer and here's the promise. You know, this is a great, encouragement for me i hope it is for you too there are times in which you and i will pray for other people to come to christ 
There are times that we pray for ourselves or for others that somehow you get a grip, you get a clue, you know, in that area that I see in your life that's not what God wants it to be. Or in which you see something in my life that's not what God means it to be. And we pray for ourselves or we pray for each other and we feel like, Lord, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed. I don't, I don't see it. I'm not hearing it. I'm not feeling it. It doesn't mean that God hasn't heard and it doesn't mean He doesn't intend to answer those prayers. God's dealing on a different time frame than we typically do. And it's just a great reminder that sometimes it may be days, months, years, or decades before God answers a prayer. But He'd heard their prayer and He always intended to answer it. He just didn't answer it when they thought He would. And that was for a purpose too. I love this too. Uh, Picture Zechariah there in the temple, the holy place. It's all gold. You know, there's only the table for the bread, the lampstand, the menorah, and the little altar for incense. That's all that's there. And he's there, and when he puts the incense, that smoke rises in the holy place. And God commanded this. This is exactly what God said to do. So the thought is, personified God smells the aroma of the incense he told them to make and burn and it's thought that it pleases God right that God you're doing something that pleases God this incense this aroma and when the angel says you prayed to God a long time ago well that was an aroma too and I know that because Revelation 5 verse 8 says that when these angels in heaven have these golden bowls of incense in heaven The incense in the bowls, the text says, are the prayers of the saints. Zechariah is physically offering incense, but he'd already offered God the incense of his prayers before. He had pleased God in the incense of his prayers. He was pleasing God here in the literal incense in the holy place. And guys, you and I can do the same thing. When you pray, you can please your Father simply by praying. You know, God says uh, He puts our tears in His bottle. It's as if there's a, there's a bottle in heaven. It's got your tears in it. Sort of the things that affect you. God's keeping track of those. Well, your prayers, they are like this precious thing that God's got a golden bowl in heaven for. And you're loading it up. And God, as it were, He smells the aroma of your prayer. And He says, I love that. I love that. You and I can please God just by praying. Just by meeting with Him in prayer. Whatever it's about. So he's gone in there, he's offered the incense, the angel shows up and says, hey, promise is fulfilled, your request, we heard it, here it comes. Verse 14, he says to Zechariah, you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So we've got another special son or child of promise, just like Isaac was to Abraham and Sarah. By the way, this this reminds us too, Samson in the book of Judges, Samson was announced beforehand to his mother by an angel. And they were told he's going to be a Nazarite. And that means you don't cut his hair and he doesn't have anything from the grapevine. He doesn't have any fermented drink, no alcohol, no vinegar. And John is going to be a little bit like that. It doesn't say specifically that he's a Nazarite, but they're to be careful that he doesn't have any alcohol. This is another way of saying he's been set apart entirely for God. In the Old Testament, priests could, and Israelites did, um, 
uh, drink wine or beer in the day. That was typical and common. It was usually healthier and better for you than water, which you could make you sick. But if you were a priest on duty, no alcohol. Well, John's on duty 24-7. And he's filled with the Spirit from the womb. You know, I love this. This has nothing to do with the text specifically, but that really speaks to the personhood of John in the womb. John was a person named by God, claimed by God, filled by God's Spirit while he was still in the womb. He had personhood. You know, we don't become human at birth. John was a person named by God, claimed by God, filled with the Spirit of God in his mother's womb. This baby is going to be so unique. We won't see a lot of John, by the way, as we go through Luke, because we're going to skip most of the other passages in the future. This guy was so important that Jesus will later say, of those born of women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. Ever. So just think about who we're talking about. So you're talking about Moses and Abraham. You're talking about all the high priests. You're talking about all the kings, all the prophets. Jesus says John tops the list as the greatest of any and all Old Testament folks you can think of. He's the greatest of them all. That's the uniqueness. And that's the baby boy born to this old couple. They thought life was over and God says, I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to gift you this son and this is who he is. Verse 16 says, He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What's he doing? What's, what's the angel doing here? What's he referring to? He's referencing Zech- uh, Malachi 4, isn't he? He's quoting Malachi 4. He has just told Zechariah that your son is Messiah's announcer. Your son is the Elijah that Malachi said would come. Your son gets to introduce the Messiah to Israel. If you want to say what important role could anyone in the Old Testament fulfill, a priest is a big deal, a king is a big deal, a prophet is a big deal. But guys, the biggest job of all was the one who got to introduce the nation to their Savior. And that is John's role. And as soon as the angel quotes Malachi, we know that's who this boy is going to be. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? How do I know this is going to happen? I'm an old man. My wife is advancing years. Like, have you taken a look at us? Do you know how old we are? Mr. Angel, do you know who you're talking to? The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you want a sign, Zechariah? I'll give you a sign. Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until that day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, hopefully you hear a hint of reproof from Gabriel. I am Gabriel. Gabriel means the power of God or the emissary of God. It's like he's saying, do you know who I am? You know, if, a, if a Bill Gates or somebody said, hey, hey here's a check for a million dollars, you can go and cash that. And I'm like, I'm not sure you're good for it. 
Gabriel's saying, I'm good for it. Do you know who I am? Do you know where I live? I live in God's presence. I stand before God, the God of all truth and all light. I stand in His presence. You can trust what I say. There's this reproof or rebuke. Now think of this too. As soon as the angel says, I am Gabriel, do you think Zechariah knows who that is? He does, doesn't he? Because Gabriel's been named in Daniel. So I'll bet his mind is reeling, because he knows the book of Daniel. All the Jews did, especially the priests. And he knows that it was Gabriel that showed up 500 years earlier to Daniel in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 9, it was Gabriel that came and helped Daniel to understand that God had a program for the nation of Israel that was based on 70 periods of seven. That's what Gabriel had talked about earlier, 500 years and change, to Daniel about. God's got a program. You don't see it. Daniel's in captivity when he gets this. You, you can't see deliverance in the future, much less the fulfillment of all the messianic promises. But the, the angel Gabriel had told Daniel, God's got a program, don't worry. We're on this timetable. And the Messiah is going to come and he's actually going to atone for sin first. But God's program's keeping keeping pace. Don't worry about that. So when Zechariah hears, I am Gabriel, he knows this is the same angel that had appeared to the great prophet Daniel 500 years earlier. It'd be like meeting your, your version of the, the movie star or whatever. You know, <laughs> Can I get your autograph? Gabriel, would you sign my, my uh, Torah here or whatever? He's a rock star, right? He's Gabriel showing up. I know who you are. And he reproves him. I am Gabriel. So that book of Daniel, Gabriel was the one who'd said, God has a timetable. Don't worry, you're on it. And earlier, as we introduced Luke's Gospel, we said from chapter 7, it was Daniel's book also that said there's going to be one called the Son of Man who's going to displace all the other kingdoms and he's going to inherit the kingdom that lasts forever. And now, here is this same angel bringing up these same issues to Zechariah. And as good as the news Gabriel brings is, Zechariah can't quite get around to believing it. Now, when he says, how shall I know these things are going to be? He's really saying, could you give me some proof? And there's other Old Testament guys like Gideon asked, right, for a sign, and Hezekiah asked for a sign, and and God didn't reprove them, but God reproves them. He says, you didn't believe. And so the sign for Mr. Z is he's silent. He's not going to be able to speak until the promise is fulfilled. And I love that. Um, well, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, I guess. Zechariah's failure to initially believe, what effect did it have on what God said would occur? Had no effect. Had no effect. Closing down, verse 21 the people were waiting for Zechariah. They're wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, when his week was up, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth, wow, she conceived, just like he said. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. So you can imagine, normally the priest would go in, it'd, it'd be a short moment to make this offering, but he's engaged in a conversation 
and the people know something's going on. He wouldn't be in there this long. Out he comes. They know something's occurred, but he's not free to tell them. But he goes home, and Mrs. Elizabeth conceives, and the word has begun to be fulfilled. Now, on your study sheet, just the couple of points I want to make. The first is this. As Luke opens his account on the account of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he does show by showing God's faithfulness in keeping his word, which he'd spoken through Malachi 400 years earlier. So this is as if it's a pivot point. The Old Testament closes in Malachi with the promise of the Messiah and his forerunner. The New Testament opens in Luke's Gospel with the announcement of the Messiah and his forerunner. God is keeping his promises. And this is the deal. In fact, I had an email this week from someone saying, hey, I'm challenged. By the way, I haven't got back to yet. Someone saying, hey, I heard something that challenged sort of the, the validity, the integrity of the Scriptures. And uh, what do you say to that? And you know, God's Word is always under attack by one direction or another. And you know, today, God's Word is under attack both from within and from without. Uh, The world's always castigating God's Word, turning from the truth. Paul talks about in Romans 1, I know it's true about God when I hear it in the Bible, and I don't like that, I turn away from it. And then I denigrate it so that it has no value or meaning. You can't tell me I should obey or pay attention to the Bible because I say it's not really what it proclaims itself to be. But you know from within the church today, guys, this is going to continue on, guaranteed, you've got evangelical academics today writing off portions of the Bible by doing things like this. If I believe evolution is a fact and that man is the product of random processes over time, somehow or other, or not, guided by God, then I come to Genesis and I have a lens that requires me to reread Genesis. And so if I say, well, I take the Bible seriously, I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that it means what it says and that God keeps His Word and keeps His promises, I've got to change how I read Genesis. And so I don't say Genesis isn't true. I say Genesis is a literary genre. It's not history. It was never meant to be history. The days, maybe those are ages. Maybe there's no connection at all. Maybe there's a real singular atom, or no, maybe, maybe evolution, as the, as the atheist scientists paint it, maybe that's the real truth. And somewhere along the way, God picked one of those guys and He said, I'm going to call you Adam. But this is going on in evangelical circles today. These are guys who say the Bible is inerrant. Also in the New Testament, these are two things that I was looking at recently. Uh, one is, these, these are academics who write books that you'll either read or you'll hear of by others, by the way. These aren't backwater guys. There's another guy who's recently said, this is in the last couple of years, in his 700-page volume on Matthew, he's told us that the element of the story of the resurrection where it says the saints were raised from the dead in their tombs and, the, and after the resurrection they came out and they went back into the city... He says, that's not history and that didn't happen. And I don't say the Bible's uh, wrong here. What I say is that's a literary genre. This wasn't meant to be literal. In the midst of the literal story about the resurrection of Jesus, does that make a a problem for you or for me? There's another guy, again, he's, he's an academic. He's instructed for decades. He's instructed theologians. 
And he has said that the Gospel of Matthew was written to show that the Apostle Peter was an apostate. That he was not a Christian. That he was lost forever. And you say, well, how can that be? Because in Luke, Jesus says, I'll pray for you, you'll be restored. Acts shows him as the key representative of God to the Jews and, and early on to everybody who hears the Gospel for the first time. And you say, well, how can, how can that be? And he says, well, that just depends on your version of inerrancy. So I don't say this, the text is false. I just say it's, it's, not, it's not true the way you're saying it. So Matthew doesn't have to agree with Luke. That's okay. And somehow they're still both inerrant. So you live in a day in which friends are writing off sections of the Bible by saying, calling it a literary genre, and it's not history. All, I, all I'm saying is here, the Old Testament ended with a promise. It was historic. It was real. God meant it. It didn't matter how long it took to fulfill it. It was God's word. It was God's promise. You can count on it. And that's true for Genesis. It is true for Matthew. And it's true for everything from Genesis to Revelation. By the way, I'm not saying God doesn't use literary genre or hyperbola. But that should be really obvious when you read them. And I think it is. If you're reading a text that seems to be history, then you better treat it as history. And if you call it a literary genre so you can write it off and say it doesn't mean what God says, what it appears to say, you've left inerrancy and you've left God's Word and you've left His promises. So we want to say, look, God's Word means at least what it says. And it oftentimes means more than we would initially think it does. One of the great things in the Bible summary class we've gone through this year Reading through the Old Testament, if you read a text in its context, it lo might look like it's only talking about Israel. But you find out because the New Testament picks it up and dusts this off, you know what, that was actually ultimately about Jesus. It was talking about Israel in Hosea. But wow, Matthew says, well, that really was about Jesus. The texts of Scripture mean at least what they say. And oftentimes they mean more. So I say all this to say, hold on to God's Word and hold on to His promises and don't let somebody rob you of those. You know, we have promises as Christians I think that we lay hold of far too infrequently. You've got a promise that if you'll take your problems to God in prayer, He'll give you peace. That's a promise. Or you've got a promise from God that in your weakness He'll make you strong and that He'll pour His grace into those areas and those times of your life when you're inadequate. God says, I'll pour my grace and my power into you in those moments. That's a promise. We ought to be taking God at His word. And when we pray, we ought to be standing on those. Lord, you have said. When you look at prayer in the Bible, you'll see almost inevitably prayer in the Bible is repeating to God what He's already said. Or it's repeating to God something that's true about His character. And so based on His character, I make this appeal. God tells us to pray, to cast our anxieties on Him. And He'll give us peace that passes understanding. That's a promise from a God who can't lie. Are we laying hold of the promises? God's Word is true and we ought to be counting on it. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says this, All the promises of God find their yes in Him. Him is Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. 
Guys, at the end of the day, and this is one of the reasons why uh, hanging on to God's Word and the promises is so important, Jesus is the end of all God's promises. If you add the promises up, or if you line them out, or however you want to say it, all those promises end with Jesus. If God's a liar, we've got a problem. Jesus' incarnation, His life, His crucifixion, His resurrection, that is God saying yes to all His promises. They're ultimately all fulfilled in Christ. All the promises of God throughout the Bible are ultimately meant to lead us to Christ. Christ is the end of all the prophets. He's the end of all God's Word. He's the end of all God's promises. All those things are meant to take us to Jesus, to the person of Jesus. And here is John, John the Baptist, Zechariah's little boy, is going to grow up, and he is going to be the promised fulfillment of Malachi to introduce people to Jesus. He's coming. God's Word is true. You can count on it. Also, last point, God's faithfulness depends on God. Gabriel said, you didn't believe my words. But my words will be fulfilled in their time. If God says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. You know, I love this, that the God of all the universe, the God of all power and all might, He could do anything He wants in any way He wants. He doesn't need you and I. And yet, typically, when He does things on the earth, He's doing it through us. He's doing it through... He's using us as His spokesmen, His ambassadors. But let's say that Mike's having a bad day. And, and I know God wants me, and this has happened, I'm afraid to say. And, and God wants me to say something to someone, and I just choke, and I don't do it. Were God's plans for that, purpose, for that person thwarted? No, they weren't. You remember in the little book of Esther in the Old Testament? Esther is told, look, Esther's a queen in the king's court when the Jews are going to be wiped out. And she is told, God has put you here for this purpose, to rise up and to speak up for your people. But she's told, and if you don't, God will raise up help from some other quarter. God's plans don't fall on you. But you have the opportunity to be a part of what God's doing. We have the opportunity to be a part of what God's doing in the lives of others, which is great and it's cool. But guys, God's power and work isn't ultimately dependent on my faithfulness or yours. His will is going to be accomplished. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We get to be a part of what He's doing, that's great. But God's promise-keeping doesn't rely on my faithfulness or yours to get the job done. Zechariah is a righteous guy. He's honored God all his life. And when God gives him this promise, he's blown away by it so fully that he doesn't believe it. And the angel says, doesn't matter. It's still going to happen. However we respond in the moment, don't worry about God's will being frustrated or thwarted. It's not going to happen. God says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We get to be a part of that oftentimes, but it's not ultimately dependent on us. Uh, closing points, if God uses an old couple like Zechariah and Elizabeth, do you think He can use you and me past their prime? I mean, as far as having kids, they think, no, no hope. Don't, don't bother. Don't worry about it. You know, we may look at ourselves and say, based on where I am, who I am, what I have, what I don't have, who I'm not, God can't use me. And I say, well, I'm not so sure. Here's an old guy just going through the motions of life, doing the things 
God's called him to do. And one day God shows up and says, I'm going to use you to bring in my son, the anointed one, the Messiah's forerunner. Your son is going to be the most important person in all the Old Testament. How's that for a day and a promise? But guys, the truth is for us, if the Spirit of God is in us, the Spirit that indwelled John the Baptist from the womb, God can use us to do anything right where we're at, as we are who we are. In fact, back then in Zechariah, the Jews had been warned, don't despise a day of small things. What's going on you don't think looks that important? God says it's important. He's in it. He's going to do it. That's what we get to be a part of. Whatever God's doing, it's important. Don't treat it as trivial, however God's using us or not. And let me, let me close on this. So the Jews are waiting for the Messiah, right? When Luke opens, they're waiting. When we get to the temple scene, there's an old guy named Simeon. And when he sees the baby Jesus, he says, God, I got it. You told me I'd see your salvation and I see him. Here he is. He was waiting. They were waiting. Guys, we have promises just like that. Their promise from Malachi was 400 years old. Ours from Jesus is 2,000 years old. But Jesus that came through Luke's Gospel, as he relates it, Jesus said he's coming back, and no less than the Jews waiting for Messiah to come the first time, Christians are called to look for. In fact, it says look for and hasten. It's like we're at the starting line of a race. We're so excited we're, we're ready to fall over the line waiting for the race to start. We're expecting and we're waiting for Jesus to come back. This is not pie in the sky. This is what the Scripture calls us to. This is an old promise we need to dust off. If we're not living by these texts, we do not have God's take on our outlook for life. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the shout of the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them with the Lord. We'll always be with the Lord. Comfort or encourage one another with these words. That's our call. Or Titus 2 says it this way. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Titus says, Paul says to Titus, that's what we're waiting for. We're on the brink, we're on the cusp, waiting for Christ's return. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1.13, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Christians, you and I today are called to have the return of Christ as our guiding star. That we're waiting for it, that we're expecting it. And because of that, we're setting our clocks by it. We're making decisions based on that. We're like those Jews in Zechariah's day. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. Thankfully, He's come in the Incarnation, but He's coming again, and we need to live with that kind of expectancy. The promises of God are good in Christ. He said He's going to come. He's going to come. Father, would You help us to see more of Your Son, the Lord Jesus? It's in Him that we have life. We have peace. We have joy, Lord, because we have forgiveness. Thanks so much that You keep Your promises, that Your Word is dependable, it's true, it's tried. Lord, would You help us to lay hold of the promises of God? And Lord, ultimately, would You help us to lay hold more and more fully of Your Son, the Lord Jesus? We give You thanks 
for him and in his name. Amen.